Well, good evening. good evening. Did you know that Brian Farley is the mayor of Duncanville? <laughs> he may be the vice mayor because there's quite a few Farleys, but if you're from Duncanville, there's Farleys on every corner and around every bend. Um, but Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, I am so glad to be with you tonight. I'm so excited to be with you um, this weekend. I have high regards for you. Um, I have high regards for your elders. Um, and and I, I don't say this everywhere that I go. One, I don't go to a whole lot of different places other than our church. Two, um, I, I couldn't say this everywhere that I go if I went to more places. But I think that Sovereign Grace Baptist Church commitment to the exposition and the teaching of the Word of God is unmatched in this area. And so what you have here is by the grace of God and a wonderful gift from from God. Um, the fact that there would be um, a crowd and energy and excitement on a Friday evening to come and worship together with fellow believers and to hear the word preached is, is a testament to what I just said. And, I, and I, I enjoyed observing. I don't always get to observe. I enjoyed observing uh, the sweet spirit that is among you. Um, it's, it's always a good sign, Brother uh, Todd, when, when you have to play the guitar really loud to get people to be quiet so that you can get on with the service. And it's always an even better sign when you're trying to leave and, and, and nobody wants to because there's a sweet fellowship in the Lord there. And so um, I'm grateful for you guys. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm excited to see how God continues to use this ministry in the future. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can go ahead and open those to Second Peter, the book of Second Peter. Um, and, and so the plan this, this weekend is for us to go through Second Peter together. It's, it's three short chapters. My plan is to preach five sermons on Second Peter. Now, now there are going to be some places that you might wish I would have spent a little bit more time. Um, I think realistically, uh, seven to eight, maybe even ten sermons would, would, would give it what it's due. Um, but for the sake of what we'll be doing here this weekend, um, we're going to be in Second Peter and it's going to be five Five sermons. What I'll do each, each service is I'll read the text. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8 um, to kick us off. I'll, I'll read the text out loud, um, and then I'll go and ask the Lord for help. And then so, sort of my style is to read back through the text and, and kind of give some commentary along the way. Sometimes there'll be some application along the way. Sometimes we'll end with some, some application. And so just so you know what to expect, a little bit of a of a road map as we'll take it a section at a time. I think the largest section that we'll take will be the second sermon tomorrow um, where we will take all of chapter 2 in, in, one, in one service. But so, so, so that's what we'll do. We'll kind of read it out loud together so we all hear it and then we'll talk back through it and then apply it to our lives. But before we do that, let me go to the Lord and if you would join me in asking God for His help um, and for His grace in this time together tonight. Father, what a privilege it is to be here. Um, Father, we believe in Your providence. We believe that You are sovereign, that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, majestic and powerful and wise above all. And so therefore, Father, we know that each one of us are in this building tonight on purpose. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts, Lord, for, for those in this place that have 
placed their faith and trust in You and they have for a long time, God, I pray that You would strengthen their faith as Your Word is read and as Your Word is preached. Father, I pray that You, through the power of Your Holy Spirit and the preaching and teaching of Your Word, that You would equip us for the work of ministry that You have before us. And Father, I pray that if there is one here that doesn't know You in a personal way, God, that You in Your kindness and in Your mercy would open the eyes of their heart to the beauty and the reality and the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is Your Word. Um, We believe that, we acknowledge that, and Lord, I understand that in order for anything meaningful to happen tonight, it's going to have to come from You. I need Your help. Those that can hear my voice right now need Your help. And so, Father, we need You, and we ask that You would speak through Your Word to us, and most of all, that You would be glorified in our time together. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you look down with me, it's 2 Peter, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to you through verse 8. And I say this to our church often, um, and sometimes people are disappointed. This is going to be the only perfect part of this message. The reading of the inerrant, infallible, powerful Word of God. My exposition is not going to be perfect. I know there's people in the pews that can do it better than me. But this is perfect, and this will be the only perfect part of this sermon. This is the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter is is writing this letter in the same time frame that he wrote his first letter. This is the second letter that Peter has written to these specific believers. Um, The first letter dealt much more with their exile. This letter has a really clear purpose, and as we journey through it, I think you're going to see it plainly. But the purpose of this letter, which really is, as we'll see, sort of his last will and testament, um, Peter, the apostle, has an urgency around the gospel. Evidently, these, these Christians, these believers, living in exile, and as hard as life must have been for them, they had forgotten some things. On top of that, not only were they in a vulnerable state, 
the culture around them was increasingly loud. It was dark. It was worldly. It was astute. There was a lot of intellect. There was a lot of knowledge seeking. But it was false. And so primarily, what was in the culture around them um, and, and what this, this sort of invasion of false teachers that was evidently making its way into the church was called Gnosticism. Literally means in the know. Um, th- this term Gnosticism, if, if you're familiar with it, you know it's often used as sort of an umbrella to cover a variety of different beliefs. But what's most important for us to know and what um, Peter wants these Christians in the first century to know is that these Gnostics and and these influencers from the outside that were working their way in, and they were good at it, they were crafty, they had strategy, they used schemes as they were working their way into the church, they did not submit to the apostles' teaching. They did not submit to the authority of the teachings and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But they might not have a problem with Him. They might agree with some of the things that Jesus taught and the examples that He gave in certain areas, but they simply did not submit to and bow down to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior that He is. These Gnostics, what would drive them are their own experiences. They were supreme. Their feelings, like what they felt about something, would sort of transcend what even reality said at times. Now, I'll say this. Some of this is going to sound eerily familiar to what we see in our culture. But brothers and sisters in Christ and friends, um, this isn't new. What we're experiencing in 2024 and what we've experienced for the last few years, it's not new. Um, It's not worse than it's ever been. Since Genesis 3, things have sort of gone south. I know you guys spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, so you've seen that plainly. And sort of the same things resurface generation after generation after generation. And God is faithful to raise up leaders, men and women, who will remind one another of the truth of the gospel. So these Gnostics, they they, they depend on their own experiences, their own feelings, their own imaginations. So their feelings, their experiences, and their imaginations are what were authoritative. And so that was the authority. And the thing is, is something could be your authority and that be okay and it not necessarily be my authority. So it was just sort of a smorgasbord where truth was not absolute in the sense that truth was relative, which, you know, if truth isn't absolute, I'm sure you guys have thought this through. That's actually something that's absolutely true. It's an absolute truth. So so there's there's inconsistencies galore, but, but that was the culture. That's what was creeping into the church. That no, no, there's not one Lord that's spoken one word that has complete and total authority. That there's all these other voices and all these other things that we don't even know about yet that we are seeking to know. That's what Gnosticism is, seeking to know. And so that was creeping into the local church. And so therefore, the word knowledge appears in some form 16 times in this short letter and in these three short chapters. And so it's not too much to say that Peter's primary solution to false teaching is knowledge. Knowledge of true doctrine. So look back with me at verse 1 with that context and that sort of purpose of this letter. 
says, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to be able to go as slow as I'm going to go in these first couple of verses the whole time we're together. Um, but in the Christian community, the lowest possible layer of society was a servant or, or was a slave. In the Christian community, the highest, the most elevated office was the apostle. And so Peter, in his salutation, in his greeting, he comes and he says, this is Peter, a servant and a slave and also an apostle. But notice what he says. He's a servant and an apostle of who? Jesus Christ. And so he's commissioned, that's his apostleship, he's been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, but he's also a servant of Jesus Christ, which shows his commitment. So Peter has been commissioned by Jesus Christ, apostleship, committed to Jesus Christ as a servant. We continue to read. So Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, in the middle part of verse 1, to those who have obtained, if you underline or highlight, that's a good word we're going to come back to, and we're going to really come back to this idea, because Peter does throughout this letter, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I told you a second ago, like so the servant was the lowest layer, the most elevated layer is the apostle, but what he lets them know is that the faith, this is who he's writing to, to the Christians, the faith that you've obtained is of equal standing with ours. And so even though the apostles were used in mighty ways by the Lord, we we are benefiting from the ministry of the apostles tonight. They still had the same desperate need of Jesus Christ. They still were sinners who, without grace, without receiving this gift of faith, without obtaining this gift of faith, they're lost and dead in their sin. So I love that. I love that he, he, he sort of brings everybody together in the sense that we are together in Christ Jesus. So this, this idea that he has um, obtained this faith is vitally important. This is really just a different way to say regeneration. And so, again, think of the culture and the context. This Gnostic thinking and like their sort of motto would be, search within Find true knowledge from within yourself. Or find true knowledge in the trees or the rocks or the animals or really whatever you wanted to try to find true knowledge in. And he's reminding them, hey, this faith that you have, this, this understanding, this salvation that you hold is something that you've obtained. It, it's been given. It's not something that you figured out. Gnostic thinking doesn't lead to genuine salvation. It might lead to faith, but a dead faith is not in Jesus Christ. But this faith they have, it's living because it was something that they obtained. Let's see who they obtained it from. Obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Here's how we, they, obtained, received this faith. By that purpose is so important. By, this is where the faith came. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's where their faith has come from. From Jesus Christ. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied 
to you. P- Peter desired that each of these Christians enjoy and possess the grace and peace of the Lord. In, in my limited understanding of these two terms, they seem to go hand in hand. Because really there's no way to experience the peace that the gospel brings without really embracing the grace that the gospel is. Because the greatest peace that's out there and only true peace that exists and the peace that's most important is not peace between you and I. The greatest peace for the sinner is is peace with the holy God that we've offended. And so in order for us to have peace in the place that it counts the most... We have to have, going back to the word obtained, we have to have received or obtained or experienced grace. There's literally no other logical way for us to make our way to Him. And and that, brothers and sisters, is the fallacy and the error of every single other religion. Every part of Gnostic thinking and every organized religion that's ever existed is a way for man to work his way up to God. The gospel is the only message of hope in which the the, the deity, the God, comes down. The deity, the God, makes His way. And and aren't you thankful tonight that that's consistent throughout the Bible? Before sin, the Lord came down with Adam and Eve and fellowshiped. After sin, praise the Lord in His grace. He came and pursued them when they were hiding from Him, and so on and so forth. The Bible is about God coming down to us. And so He didn't want them to just have grace and peace in, in, in little portions. Did you notice what He says? He says, may grace and peace be what? Multiplied to you. In the knowledge, there's, there's our word, That's one of the 16 times in some form we'll see it. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now after his salutation in verse 3, now he he comes out of the gate like, I mean, I feel like he's with the three-hole hitter right here. Okay, so he, he comes out of the gate strongly, and really these few verses are some, in my opinion, and I guess in just, just in my walk with the Lord at this point, are some of the most rich verses in the Bible. Complex, but rich. And so this is what he begins with in his letter when he gets to the content. His divine power has granted... If you underline or highlight, you might want to get that because you could draw an arrow if you did all the way back up to obtained. This is again him highlighting and emphasizing and reminding that everything we have is from God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so he comes with clarity. We have... We have, imagine if this was how the the sermon began. You have the ability, through God's power, to do everything that He's called you to do and everything He's asked you to do. I mean, it would seem like, well, alrighty, let's just close our Bibles, fasten our bootstraps, and go get after it. There's tremendous clarity in what He's saying and what He's preaching to them. But the adjective before the power does give us insight that, it, that it's, 
divine power. Again, please don't ever lose sight of this context. In their culture, and the temptation is, is to find power and knowledge and wisdom in some other lesser, much lesser sources. And he's reminding them, like, you're, you're tempted to seek these things in all of these lesser areas, and He, the Lord, has given you, He's granted you, through His divine power, everything that pertains to life. And in that word life, it means life. And so everything we think about in life, like He's given us everything. All that we've been called to in our Christian life, which there aren't compartments, I'm sure you know that, where you put on your Christian hat and take off your Christian hat. We're always Christians. There's always a great commission. And so everything that pertains to life, but this other word is interesting, and and, and godliness. I wouldn't think of this as much in the way of being like God. This word means your piety or your reverence. And the idea is, is not as much you living like God or being like God, which is, I think, typically the way that it's understood. The idea is more around reverence. Reverence when you gather, like we're gathering tonight, around the Lord and His holiness and His majesty and His grace and His mercy and His righteousness. Reverence when the Word of God is preached. Reverence when the Word of God is read. But also, brothers and sisters, this is so important for us because I know you, you may have said it. I've said things like this. I hear it all the time. I can't believe, you're, I can't believe you said that in church. Right? We think that way. Like, like this is maybe God's house and, and, and he lives, you know. No, I know y'all don't think that. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going over the top to illustrate my point in that the Lord is as concerned about our godliness or our piety or our reverence when we're at Walmart as he is when we're sitting in the pew. And so there's an attitude of the heart that's reverent and understands the reality of the omnipresence of our God. Where the psalmist, inspired by the Spirit, says that there's nothing that his eyes can't see. And there's no better way to fight personal holiness than to believe that truth. In that we may hide things from one another, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Holy One, sees all. So He's granted to us everything that pertains, all things that pertain to life in godliness. Now let's continue through the verse. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, our understanding of, of godliness really helps us with this next section, or at least it does me. Because He's, he's called us to His own glory and excellence. And, and again, there, there's some depths there that I'll... I'll I don't pretend to understand. But as we've trusted Jesus, part of obtaining this faith is that the exchange of Calvary, the exchange of the gospel, is that Christ took our sin and its punishment, and in exchange, what did we receive? His righteousness. And so positionally, we possess the excellencies and the righteousness and the glory of of the Lord. He, he's called us to His own glory and excellence, but in, contextually it is more about this life that they're living in this way that they are applying the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done for them. Look at verse 4 as He continues. 
by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. And so, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Now, he, he's, obviously, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit here, and so he's writing as the Spirit breathes out these actual words. And, and so the sort of culmination of everything that we've read in its depth and, and all that it is, is that this has come through and how we understand more about life, more about godliness, more about God calling, more about obtaining faith, more about the gospel, more about everything, more about how to combat false teachers is when we are committed to and understand what we hold here in His precious and very great promises. And so he has a singular focus. In a world and a culture of plurality and many sources of knowledge, he brings us home. He opens our Bibles and keeps them open. He says we've been given these things or by his precious and very Great promises, and then so that, purpose clause, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He, he wants us, and of course the first century hears, he, he wants them, and in turn us, He wants us to fully embrace and understand the reality and the magnitude of what it means for us to be in Christ. Because when we think like He's thinking, then we have eyes to see what's going on around us. I mean, whenever we... Like, like when you taste like your grandmama's biscuits, right? And then you go in the freezer and pull out one of those little two-pack sausage biscuits that you heat up for 25 seconds. And I love them when I'm hunting. But you're tracking with me. Like when you've been eating grandma's cathead biscuit every day of the week, and then somebody messes around and gives you something less than that, you know it. That's a silly illustration, but I hope it connects the dot in that whenever we are thinking on and dwelling on and remembering whose we are, then we recognize much more quickly the fallacy and the falsehood around us, which shows the application in verse 4. So all of this that he said, here is an application up to this point, I think, in what Peter's saying. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So the truths that he's just mentioned um, about our desires and about what the Lord has done, um, the, the application is the, one of the ways that we escape the corruption of the world is to remember whose we are, to remember how we became whose we are all through grace. And when tempted, we remember we know what we know from His promises. And friends, I look across this room and maybe some of you have been faithful saints in this church or in some church for many, 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 many years. And there might be a temptation to think that somehow we... I mean, I don't think any of us would say we outgrow the gospel... But maybe we think that the, you know, there's like strong faith means that we are going to actually need less faith, less dependence. It's not the case. The case is that we will always, as long as we live here, 
need to remember and be reminded in the best way that we combat the evil and the falsehood in our own hearts, in our own thinking, and in the culture around us is to remember whose we are and how we became whose we are and where we found out about whose we are, which are from His precious and very great promises. In verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with Love, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here Peter speaks to the fruit of this faith that we have obtained. And I want to draw your attention to what I think is probably one of the more important words in this section. And it's found in verse 5, and it's the word effort. Make every Effort. That word also means eagerness or, or to be eager. And a lot of times in, in the circles that I sort of run in where we wholeheartedly believe in and preach the, the grace of Jesus Christ in all things and the full sovereignty of God in everything, a lot of times the words like effort and obedience kind of get like a little bit of a weird look like, oh, here we go. You just said you were, you know, you know, you had this sort of sovereign thinking, but now you're talking about obedience. Here comes the legalism. Well, I want you to sort of war against that if that is you tonight and, and, and really walk with me in understanding this, this idea of us in, in light of and, and because of the grace of God, this call for us to give an effort or to have an eagerness because the eager make every effort to supply to their faith with these qualities. Now, this effort and this eagerness and this desire for the qualities that we'll talk about a little bit more in just a second, it is not something that comes from our own strength. Literally, if, if anybody in the first century had been listening to Peter up to this point, there's no way they could conclude. There's no way they can conclude that he's expecting now us to do something that we aren't able to do in our own strength. And so he, he knows, they know, he's not talking about something that comes from within us, he's talking about still what we've obtained. The faith, remember, he's granted to us everything, all things that pertain to life and to, to godliness. And so those eager for these things, and this is still true today, friends, those eager for these qualities mentioned are less likely to fall in love with this present world. And here's why. Because they're not as willing to pour their effort into worldly things. I fight this. Brothers and sisters, I know I don't know some of you well, but I don't stand up here as a man who has this all figured out in the sense that I capitalize on every moment that I should capitalize that I show effort and eagerness in all the ways that I should show effort and eagerness. And so this idea, and in their culture, as these Christians, they are weary. The culture around them is wearing them down. The persecution is weighing on them. But this is a charge. This is a plea. 
He wants them to make every effort because of who Jesus is and what He's done for you. And those of us that have set our minds and have the resolve to make effort to live the life that God has called us to live and live the life that God has equipped us to live, we will be much less likely and tempted to give our energy and our effort to something less than what the Lord has put us here for. We'll see it. We'll recognize it. And these, these temptations to put our energy and effort in things that are less than are so subtle. Because I don't think they're all evil things. They can be good things. It can be money. It can be relationships. It can be occupation. It could be a hobby. It could be whatever. But there's a temptation for us to put effort and energy and even have stronger convictions about lesser things than what Christ has done in us and through us and what He's put us here to do. It's not just a first century temptation. It's a temptation for today. And so Peter's plea is to seek the truth. If we want to master our cravings, our worldly cravings and our worldly impulses, Seek the truth. If they treasure true godliness above anything else, then those cravings and those worldly impulses will shrink. And so we are too, with great effort, not to expect moral excellence, but to be virtuous as we desire holiness. That's the first quality in that virtue. We are not to expect moral excellence but we are with great effort to commit to a desire in holiness. We are too with great effort to seek the knowledge of God, but friends, not for the sake of having degrees in theology, not to receive the accolades of men, not to win arguments, as fun as those can be to win. Not to be known for our intelligence, But we are to with great effort to seek the knowledge of God so that we learn from God and that we gain the mind of Christ. We are to with great effort to have self-control, resisting the desires of our flesh. And and brothers and sisters, we need each other in this particular fight. I, I need your effort towards me and you need my effort towards you so that we can help one another resist the sinful desires of Our flesh is specifically here in the way of self-control. Peter is clear. He says, with great effort, we are to have self-control in resisting the desires of our flesh. We are to, with great effort, to be steadfast in our discipline to the means of grace that God has given us as we patiently wait for the day. And we're going to talk a lot more about this day over the next couple of sermons. We are to, with great effort, to be Godly, as I mentioned, that is our piety and our reverence for God and gathered worship in how we live our lives. We are too with great effort to have brotherly affection. And that word, uh, or that phrase, brotherly affection, it means to be charitable. To be charitable to one another within the body of faith, but also to be charitable to those outside of it. We are too with great effort, and he closes with this quality, to love one another. And that's probably the one that we would say, takes great effort. It does. 
People are weird. I'm weird. People are messy. Relationships are hard. Discipleship is like getting in the trenches. It's hard work. It's, it takes effort. But we are too with great effort to love one another. But here's what we aren't doing. Because there's a word there that can be confusing, and I do believe that it's been misapplied and mistaught and misunderstood often. And it's the word supplement. We aren't adding to our faith. We are exhibiting what we have been shown through Christ and what we have been given in Christ. There's a huge difference here. Like if we're putting the bow on our salvation by our good works, then salvation is not wholly the Lord's. If we're capping off the work that Jesus did on the cross through His life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension with our good works, then we really don't have a gospel in my opinion. Not one that brings the peace that Peter's already talked about. Not one that can communicate the grace that he's mentioned. And so we're not adding to our faith. We are showing what we've been shown in Christ and what we've been given in Christ because Jesus is the one who epitomized virtue. Jesus is the one who epitomized true knowledge and truth. Jesus showed true self-control. Jesus was steadfast in His obedience to the Father. Jesus taught us what true piety and reverence was. Jesus was the most charitable. Jesus demonstrates the greatest act of love that exists. And so as we think about these qualities, this is not a list of things that we are supposed to now put checks beside so that we can be sure that we've obtained this faith. That's a misunderstanding. The understanding is, hey, you have obtained this faith. Jesus Christ has sought you and saved you and He knows you. Think about that. There's true freedom there. In that in Christ we have someone who knows us completely and He loves us completely. He demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who among us is proud enough to say that you could demonstrate a love greater than that love? And so we live out of the reality of what Jesus has done for us and the love that He's shown us and the grace that He's poured on us and the faith that He's given us. And He's given us everything. He's granted us everything through His divine power to do and to be everything that He's called us to do and to be. He's done it all, friends. He didn't save us and say, all right, now it's up to you. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us. It's that same gospel that will bring us safely home. We're going to see in chapter 2, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, that He knows how to rescue the godly. This, This message is not to be understood that we add to our faith, but we live out of The motivation and sort of the bulldozer behind us is the grace and the mercy of God because of what He's done for us. So when it comes to life and godliness, we are helpless on our own. 
on our own, as he says in verse 8, when he speaks of being ineffective and unfruitful. Brothers and sisters, I promise you, on our own, some of you know this already, we will be unfruitful and we will be ineffective. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? Apart from me, how many things can you do? He didn't say that, I'm paraphrasing. But Apart from me, this is what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do no thing. Nothing. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I think if we really believe what Jesus says in John 15, it would solve an enormous amount of dysfunction in our hearts and our relationships. Because we have a tendency to try to do it. We have a tendency to try to find it in ourselves. We don't have enough gas in our tank. We don't have the supply that we need in ourselves. But we have everything because it's been granted to us by His divine power. Everything that pertains to life and godliness in what we have received through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.